welcome to this episode of New Retina Radio Hot Topics. In today's program, we'll focus on inherited retinal diseases, or IRDs. We'll share a brief overview of IRDs and what you need to know, the importance of patient referral and what they can expect in that process, as well as a peek into the future via the IRD pipeline. This is an editorially independent podcast supported by Novartis. So thank you all for, for joining us um, at uh, New Retina Radio. And this is a podcast um, focusing on clinical considerations for optimal management of patients with inherited retinal diseases. I'm joined here by two great friends and super specialists in inherited retinal disease. On the one hand, we go to France, Paris, France, at Sorbonne Université, Professor Isabelle Audot, who is a clinician scientist and professor in ophthalmology also at the Cannes-Vin Hospital, and is a group leader in the Department of Genetics at the Institut de la Vision in Paris in France. My other colleague and friend is Professor Robert McLaren, Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Oxford, and a consultant ophthalmologist at Oxford Eye Hospital in Oxford in the UK. Both are very experienced, so I'm Bart Leroy. I'm a clinical geneticist and ophthalmologist. I work as head of department and professor of ophthalmology at Ghent University and Ghent University Hospital, where I do um, mostly genetic ophthalmology. Uh, I also work part-time as an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in the USA. So we are here to discuss a couple of things for you on um, inherited retinal diseases, um, we'll talk about IRDs because that is much easier to say. And maybe, uh, Rob and Isabel, one of you may just start off with giving us your view on a brief um, selection of IRDs that you would, would want to um, uh, see as categories. So a brief overview of IRDs, how do you classify them? And maybe Isabel, ladies first, if you want to just jump in and tell us how you see the classification currently. So uh, IRDs are a very uh, large and heterogeneous group of disorders. And there's many classification that you can uh, use uh, either based on the clinical um, or um, clinical uh, um, characteristic and symptoms are based on the gene. So uh, on the point of view of the clinics, usually we uh, oppose uh, congenital but stationary disorders, such as congenital stationary night blindness and achromatopsia, which are usually associated with the, um, uh, profound uh, visual uh, dysfunction from birth, but don't progress. Uh, and uh, on the other side, progressive disorder, which I can actually start very early on, such as labor congenital amaurosis and be also very severe, but tend to progress. Uh, so from labor congenital amaurosis to uh, retinitis pigmentosa, which is one of the most common form of IRDs, uh, which affects the entire retina. And uh, on the other side, you have uh, dystrophies that will affect only the macula, and obviously within this heterogeneous group, the consequences on visual function is different. And um, on the other side, the genetic background of this uh, heterogeneous con condition is very uh, diverse. 
uh, with a lot of complexity because uh, um, when you start by the gene, one gene can also be uh, causing different type of IRDs and some IRDs, very um, uh, classical IRDs can also be linked to mutation in very various genes. Well, thank you, Isabel. And indeed, you, you touch upon an important point, I think, that we all know, that is that with the advent of high-throughput molecular genetic screening, we can get many genes done, and therefore we are able to identify more than ever what is the background of um, a, an IRD in a patient. And so, Rob, what do you think? Uh, are we heading towards a molecular classification of disease, or do you think that there will always be a mix because it's the clinician seeing the patient? Well, that's a very good uh, question, Bart, and uh, thank you for raising this important topic. Um, of course, all of the diagnoses are molecular by, by definition. The question is whether we know the gene or not. And I think my priority for all my patients in number one, even possibly before they even sit down at the slit lamp, is to try and ask myself, what gene is it that's causing this degeneration? Uh, because the genetic diagnosis now is a key factor in deciding whether or not that patient may have a treatment, obviously with RP65, or whether indeed they may be eligible for trial for a number of other promising new treatments which are currently in development. At the same time, a genetic diagnosis can also help in patients where clearly there's no gene therapy available you know, in the next few years to give them some realistic prospect. And of course, there are other trials that they may wish to get involved with, such as the, uh, the cell therapy trials or, or, or even other you know, electronic or optogenetic therapies. Um, I have to say, um, you know, I, I kind of got into genetics a little bit late in my ophthalmology career. Uh, I pretty much had completed my training in surgery and cataract surgery and animal surgery. And um, it was at Moorfields when I was um, spending some time with Professor Tony Moore in the genetics clinic, which I'm sure you both remember very well uh, down in the basement there. I somehow got a little bit inspired by it, you know. Um, I found it intriguing that these diseases were occurring from genetic disorders, single gene mutations, and yet they all somehow look very similar. Um, and, and I think, you know, that really inspired in me a desire to try and try and find out ways of correcting those, those very same genetic mechanisms. And, and as you know, it was always very difficult to arrange electrophysiology at Moorfields. Um, you know, there's a huge demand on the service. And, and so I, I kind of did my career training really, and I didn't really do many ERGs and, and now I find myself as a consultant in my genetics clinic. I, I really, I really ever order them. I mean, I might do in a case where I've got a genetic diagnosis I'm trying to confirm. Um, but again, it's, a, it's, an, it's unusual. It's sort of flipped the other way around. I think at the start of my career, everyone had electrophysiology and very few people had a, a genetic test. Now, in, in my hands, it's, it's certainly the other way around. So, you know, that's the excitement for me. And I think, you know, we can do things with these patients. And, and one thing I always say to my trainees in the clinic is, you know, don't just sit in front of the patient and tell them you're going to lose your sight, your retina's got thinner, your visual fields, again, we don't do that much anymore anyway, but, you know, don't tell them everything's getting worse, worse and worse, you know, every year. Just try and give them something to cling on to. If there's one thing about their retinal degeneration that is stable, in other words, if the visual acuity is the same as it was the year before, you know, mention that to the patient, try and find something positive to end on. Of course, give them the information they need, but try and do so in, in a positive way. And I think that's also an important part of what we do. We need to show empathy for our patients, particularly those that have no treatment at the moment. 
and leave some some hope for everyone. Indeed, it's I fully agree. So, Isabel, do you do you could you just tell us what you think um, is essential for uh, one of our colleagues who, in private practice or in a large hospital practice, believes that this might be a patient with an inherited retinal disease? Um, what are in general aspects of disease that you would think pinpoint or point to the fact that this is genetic in nature? So I guess uh, um, it will depend on the patient population and the age. Usually inherited retinal disease are diagnosed in childhood or uh, young adults. It's very uncommon in elderly people, uh, although it can happen. Um, then it's usually slowly progressive. So if you have a patient presenting with a rapid visual loss, this is not really, really characteristic. And then there's some symptoms. Um, night blindness, which in our big cities is uh, very often overlooked, uh, should uh, be one of the symptoms that can uh, alert on a, um, especially a, um, retinitis pigmentosa, and then if it's a, a bilateral condition, uh, which is uh, especially for the most common retinitis pigmentosa, it's usually quite bilateral and 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 if the progression is very symmetric, unlike other disorders such as posterior uveitis, where you have uh, um, asymmetry or, or, or an unusual fundus. So then, uh, obviously, the classical uh, uh, question you ask to your patient: uh, Do you, uh, how do you manage with bright light or dim light? Uh, do you bump into uh, obstacles and into doors, which can be a sign? And then uh, a fundus examination. And uh, as retina specialists, I think we rely a lot more on multimodal imaging, but still, fundus examination is really, really important. Uh, I think. Um, if I see in, in my practice uh, some uh, delayed diagnosis, um, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, if you look at the vitreous, all these inherited retinal disease, the generalized one, have some inflammatory uh, cells in the vitreous, which can sometimes be misleading uh, for uh, other diagnosis. So uh, this would not exclude a genetic disorder if there's some cells in the vitreous. And you have the classical pigment migration that you can see on fundus examination uh, associated with pale optic disc and narrowed vessels. But this is uh, already late sign of the of the disease. Uh, so if you have subtle signs, I think, uh, especially, like I said, symmetrical, um, I think some uh, complementary examination should be uh, uh, prescribed if you have a doubt. Fully agree, Isabel. And I think that uh, symmetry of disease is indeed an important factor uh, when you um, meet a patient that you suspect of having inherited retinal disease. Maybe an exception to that rule would be the heterozygous females to mutations in the X-linked RP genes, where asymmetry of disease is quite often seen in my own experience. Um, I, and please tell me if, if you disagree with me, but that would be the prime example, I would say, where uh, genetically determined retinal disease might be asymmetrical. Uh, but those cases are not too frequent. So what do you do, Rob, when, when, when you and you alluded to it, um, and Isabel as well, what do you do when you get a patient in, you get a referral, and this is query inherited retinal disease? What, what do you do? How do we, as super specialists, um, handle 
the patient and what do we do differently from our colleagues who refer those patients to us? Well, I think, again, that's a, a challenge. Um, one of the things that I'm aware of is that, um, I mean, I'm sure like you, we, we, we work in, you know, European sense of excellence. We're surrounded by fellows and trainees who want to know everything. And sometimes I feel that our own discussions can sort of have the patient in the middle of the room, but not really being spoken to very much, just all talk, talked about. Uh, and so I do make a conscious effort, particularly that first consultation, to have you know real face-to-face -face discussion and empathy with the patient, to listen to what they want to hear. And then the discussions with my team about all the interesting genetics and things will, will follow on um, later on. Um, I think imaging is very important. If, if I were to... If I were to say to you, what does a patient want to know? They want to know, number one, is there a treatment? Because they don't know, they haven't necessarily seen a specialist before and they hear things on the news and the internet. And number two, how long have they got in terms of their vision? And these are the two things I know they want to ask me, even though they won't necessarily say so. And I think the imaging is very helpful because I think one can look at the imaging and as Isabel mentioned, the history of onset is also important, but the imaging will tell you a lot if you look at their age, to give you a rough idea, you know, how long, how long they've got. And coming back to my previous discussion point, um, if I can give them some hope that they're not going to go blind tomorrow or the next day or even the next year or even the next decade, you know, I think that's a positive result for many people because they really are very, some of them very, very ill-informed about their disease because they haven't had a chance to speak uh, with a specialist. So I think to, 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 to really summarize, you know, you've got to think about the questions the patient wants to ask you, but maybe afraid to ask. Uh, they're the same questions for all of them and try and think of a way of getting the answers across to them in a positive way. Well, thank you, Robin. So one, one thing that I'd like to add is that um, when a patient comes in, as you say, uh, talking to the patient and trying to find an answer to the many questions that they have, first and foremost, am I going to get blind? And if that happens, when? Um, I always add uh, to this um, uh, also the a discussion, obviously one draws a pedigree so that you get a good idea from a pedigree, um, which takes time if you do a good one. Uh, from a pedigree, you can extract information that suggests a potential mode of inheritance. And um, whilst talking about that, I think it's important and I try and convey that message to patients is that I don't only want to know whether your treatment is just around the corner or we already have it because we're in, in a budding, very novel um, era now, but there are many treatments around the corner. But actually knowing the gene and knowing a mode of inheritance immediately also informs the patient about what is the risk, the recurrence risk for the children of that patient. And this is sometimes overlooked and I'm sure that you also spend a lot of time discussing this with patients. Uh, and, and this is a reason uh, for also for, for knowing the gene, apart from the fact that prognosis um, is something you're better informed about when you know a gene. And what we routinely offer, and I would say we do it like on a monthly basis, is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis so that people with disease that can recur in children uh, in the different um, types of inheritance patterns um, so that their children are not diseased. Uh, and so all of this can be offered uh, rather immediately uh, whilst patients are indeed prepared for gene therapy trials or future gene therapy. Um, 
I, I don't know whether you have anything to add, but I think it is an important message also that knowing the gene tells you, informs you about prognosis and informs you about the reproductive options. What do you think? Do you agree? <laughs> I would agree, but uh, going back to the question, uh, you know, of the patient, am I going to be blind? What do you answer to that question? Especially it's the first time you see the patient. Uh, I think, I think Obviously, people on, on listening to this podcast can't tell, but I have a lot of gray hair, uh, which means that I've seen quite a number of patients in my life. And so oftentimes, uh, we as people with some, some um, serious experience in this type of disease, you can already gauge a little bit on what you see and knowing what type of condition this is, where the patient will end up. And so I, I try to avoid direct confrontation and saying, oh yes, you're gonna be blind in 10 years. And because that is often something that is being said by the less experienced colleague uh, who refers the patient. And that is not a message I try to convey because I, first of all, um, know many more patients with IRDs that don't go blind completely and I'm not talking about legally blind here, I'm talking about no light perception. Uh, and so it's only the minority of our patients who really get down to the level of, of NLP. Um, so what I personally say when they ask this question is, I don't believe you're gonna be blind in five or 10 years from now, and I also have high hopes for gene therapy and other types of therapy. And we traditionally discuss in our team the gene therapy options the cell therapy options, and obviously the bionic eye options, where um, electronic solutions um, are going through a little bit of a cakewalk phase and some companies go bust and then others come and generate novel systems. But in general, those three categories are the ones that we all three, I'm pretty certain, um, discuss through with our patients. What about um, management post-diagnosis? So you have a, a diagnosis. Uh, Rob, you, you rightfully said, um, given that we have so many options for molecular diagnosis these days, we tend to initially at least rely less on immediate full Monty functional testing, which is electrophysiology. We oftentimes go through deep phenotyping with imaging. Sometimes we do electrophys, but we don't always do this. And then we go for genotyping. And as you then know the gene, would you then say that electrophysiology is an important tool for you to gauge evolution of disease over time for a patient? I have to be honest with you, Bart, and I apologize for the, for the controversy, but I don't think the ERG really has any role in the management of inhydrational diseases today. Wow, I just said that. <laughs> now, um, you know, perhaps going to a slight extreme there, but, you know, it's an unpleasant test for the patient. I mean, as you well know, the FDA will not accept electrophysiology as a basis for approval of a medicinal product because it, it doesn't tell you about the subjective uh, visual decline of the patient. And I'd much rather those patients spent time doing microperimetry, for instance, which I think, in my view, has taken over far more information information that's, that's useful. Now, I'm not saying it's not no place at all. Of course, you know, for albinism, where you suspect optic nerve disease, uh, possibly in children where there's unexplained visual loss, uh, possibly with CSNB, enhanced Escone syndrome, you know, there are other 
cases where you may wish to verify your diagnosis. But I, I do think we have to think a little bit about the fact it is quite an unpleasant test um, on, on, on the patients. Um, and I just would like to just, you know, just come back to that discussion point. It's very important. Um, we have looked at um, the the, the progression of uh, retinal degeneration anatomically. And our observation suggests that it is an exponential decay function. And this is a very important thing to tell patients because if it's a linear decay, they, they imagine the rate of loss of their field, for instance, and they assume that it will continue the same way. But it is a little bit like radioactive decay. So, so what that means essentially is they, they lose a percentage of what they've got every year. And if you're losing, you know, 10% per year, the actual amount you lose gets less and less the more advanced the disease is. And this is very helpful information because, number one, it's, it's truthful information. And it also, again, just makes that patient think a little bit differently in the progression. I think, well, I've lost this this year, but the likelihood is that I'll probably lose less next year and, and so on and so forth. And I'm not sure if electrophysiology really gives us that level um, of, of detail due to the variabilities in the same way that an anatomical assessment with a really good resolution OCT scan would. Well, you are a little bit of a rebel there for electrophysiological minds, but I'll ask Isabel to, to jump in. <laughs> Okay, so I'll be in between. No, I think electrophysiology has its place on the first uh, diagnosis basis um, because you have all the differential for retinal dystrophies and unless, of course, you have a clear a cut fundus for uh, RP, uh, I completely agree, there's no need to do an ERG and record no, no signal and then it's also when you uh, tell the patient it's also a negative point to have unrecordable signal and things like that. But uh, for, uh, like you mentioned, uh, enhanced syndrome, uh, X-linked retinoscisis, CSNB, uh, these diagnoses, if you don't have an ERG, you may um, mislead the, the, the test. Also now genetic testing, you can do a whole genome for anything and, and you have your answer. But I think for the positive diagnosis, it's really, really uh, important on the first basis. Uh, um, I do think to come to your point on structural parameters, I do think there's some genetic condition where there's a discrepancy between structure and function. So I, I still think there's definitely a need for function, structure function correlation, but definitely uh, full feed ERG is a global response. Multifocal ERG is very difficult because you rely on a very um, uh, stable fixation and, uh, and all the psychophysical tests definitely um, um, makes more sense of, uh, to be correlated with uh, multimodal imaging, but not only imaging. I think function is quite critical as well. So Isabel, we, we, I, I agree with both of you uh, really, and I, I know where Rob is coming from. I, I do believe that electrophysiology and functional testing is important, but probably with the advent of High throughput molecular screening, we have a we have our diagnosis oftentimes through other means. I personally have multiple cases where uh, both the molecular diagnosis has helped me out because any functional and structural testing was a specific, and it was the genetic screening that taught me like this is a very mild case of mutations in a gene that I normally associate with much. Um, much more extreme disease. Uh, on the other hand, I've, and I'm sure you both have had the same uh, a couple of times at least, 
Um, I remember vividly a couple of cases where young children come in and they have a diagnosis of progressive IRD and the diagnosis is cone rod dystrophy or rod cone dystrophy and then you do an ERG and the ERG is so specific for uh, for congenital stationary night blindness, one of its subtypes. We don't need to go into the details, but it is so classic. And you can immediately, prior to confirming that diagnosis molecularly, which still will take anywhere between a month and six months, depending on the services that you have available, um, it, it, it basically will help out telling the parents, like, this is so typical, this is not progressive disease, this is a disease that will stay stable. And with that, actually, I, I'd love to uh, start off a little bit of a discussion uh, on something else, but because France, the United Kingdom, uh, Belgium, um, even the US, to some extent, uh, but certainly the three European countries that I now named, uh, have molecular testing available quite easily. And we shouldn't forget that that is not the case in many of the parts, many parts of the world that, that are um, uh, very much in need for molecular diagnosis. Um, uh, do you agree that, that access to molecular services is something that should be enhanced in many parts of the world? Rob, what do you think? Um, yes, I mean, I, I, I won't disagree with that uh, at all. Um, one of the things that we can do possibly to help is to structure our clinical trials, particularly our genetics trials, to include you know, other centers around the world. Because with the digital technology, as, as I can see looking at my computer screen at the moment, uh, you can communicate with your esteemed colleagues, you can send scans, and of course the blood or saliva samples can be shipped. You don't actually physically need to have the patient in front of you. And I think some of these genetic studies where we're looking for genes that are potentially treatable, uh, we should involve our, our colleagues overseas and encourage them to work with us and collaborate so they don't have to, uh, to spend the amount they would need to to set up their services locally. Isabel, do you have any points to make on that? You know, we are at a very uh, positive era since we all started to get interested in ophthalmic genetics is that we have an approved treatment. We have very promising clinical trials and uh, this should, uh, these promises should uh, be uh, reachable by, uh, by, you know, patients worldwide. And because the uh, requirement is to have a proper molecular testing to be part of this uh, clinical trial, then these uh, molecular testing should get Broadly, it should be broadly available, definitely. Certainly something we should strive for, indeed, yeah. that, that we have and we can solve for some patients, like Rob was saying, we can solve this by including patients from around the world. But on the other hand, we also should strive, I think, to have molecular testing more widely available throughout the world. And Rob, maybe to, to just summarize, what, what are the important um, clinical trials currently ongoing you think in gene therapy for IRDs? Well, we have the um, the Croydoremia trial um, is in is in phase three. It's fully recruited, um, and we hope to have the results of that um, next year. Uh, we've also got uh, going into phase three the clinical trial for X-linked retinitis pigmentosa caused by mutations in RPGR. And we published the early results of that trial in Nature Medicine this year, showing a reversal um, of some of the visual field loss, which we believe is due to reconstruction of the outer segments following successful gene transfer in the surviving photoreceptors. So that for me is probably the most exciting thing that I've seen to date. 
Um, we don't know about slowing down or stopping the disease, in humans at least. We know that it does so in the large animals and the mice studied previously. But to actually see a reversal of some of the anatomical changes accompanied by an improvement in visual field, I mean, that is a huge, huge finding that could have significance for any number of retinal degenerations. And it, you know, it makes me a little bit reluctant with patients who are quite advanced when we discuss Lux Turner to tell them that you're not going to have any benefit, because I don't think we really have enough information to say that at the moment. And I hope that all of us come together and discuss our Lux Turner cases and try and really work out, you know, which patients do have an improvement in vision and how can we be sure that we're not denying a treatment which may be of some benefit to some people. Yeah, obviously, and, and there are efforts, for example, by Novartis Pharma to, um, to have the treatment centers convene and discuss cases that are more difficult. And so to have input from one another is exceptionally important. And the, um, like you say, there are cases that, in my view, would benefit and, and probably would uh, be considered as patients who may not benefit anymore from treatment, um, potentially for financial reasons, uh, from national payers, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Isabella, do you, do you agree that um, even though we can't promise a patient who is someone with, with really bad vision from the outset, that we can't promise them to become fighter jet pilots. But do you agree that, that obviously there is an absolute need to set the expectations right? And, and how do you approach that in clinical practice? That's a, a really critical question. Uh, again, we are at the era where there's a, a promising clinical trial, very exciting, and in uh, addressing different uh, issue of the of, of the retinal degeneration, you know, from uh, gene replacement therapy that requires that at least some cells, some photoreceptor cells are st still there to, to receive the, the treatment. From uh, um, um, stem cell research or um, retinal implant or optogenetics that can uh, uh, address the, the very advanced cases. So I think there's really um, different options that are uh, under investigation that are really, really positive uh, for the patient. So sometimes, like every patient say, you know, you told me that two years ago and still I don't have um, blah, blah, blah. And of course, the patient don't go to scientific meetings and they don't see all these great papers that are regularly published that are very positive. But um, this is also maybe our role when we uh, see them to uh, tell them about the research. Also, uh, um, I, I, I would say we discussed that uh, a lot of different times, uh, Bart, uh, with the, all these websites that also promise the moon to the patient. So we should be also uh, very informative on, on uh, some information on the web that are available that are completely wrong. So it's a balance of all this uh, excitement about the new clinical trials um, that may not apply to everyone, but very promising uh, project that uh, will address different stages of the disease and being careful in the information that they can get from elsewhere. Rob, do you want to, is there anything you'd like to add? Or? My final point is, uh, you know, it, to, to listeners there who may be, you know, starting out in managing patients with, with IRDs, um, I found a lot of people who come to my clinic, even though I can't do anything for them, even if I can't put them in a trial, um, if I explain to them, why they're going blind and losing their vision. That for them is a huge life-changing moment. And quite often they say to me, look doctor, I'm so pleased I came to see you. For the last 30, 40 years, I've been going to see doctors, I've been going blind, no one has told me why. 
at, at last, you've explained to me why I'm going blind. And thank you very much for doing that. And we mustn't forget that. That's a very important part of what we do as physicians, is to explain the disease process as well as try, in, in, in most cases, to offer a treatment. I fully agree, Rob, and I think it's a, a beautiful note to end with. The um, management of patients with IRDs is uh, time-consuming. It's so much so rewarding. And what you then say to a patient, you have this condition, and we see this condition as so and so and so, and this is what is happening to you, and that's why you can see those changes in vision. It gives closure to a patient, and giving closure to a patient where he or she can feel like, okay, this is my condition, this is what I can expect over time, and potentially there might be a treatment that saves part of my vision. Uh, people are exceptionally happy to, to meet an IRD expert indeed. And so um, uh, what I would like to say as, as a wrap-up of, of our very informative discussion, and thank you both for, for contributing to um, uh, what I found was a very informative and interesting session is that people shouldn't be afraid when they see a patient with an IRD or a suspected IRD. Um, looking at symmetry of disease, looking at um, fairly slow progression oftentimes, um, it can be a generalized retinal disorder, it can be a localized central disorder when you meet the patient. Um, don't hold back from referring them to centers of excellence. Uh, centers of excellence will focus on uh, deep phenotyping, and that's a beautiful term, but what it means is we go through imaging, we do go through uh, functional testing of different kinds, uh, and then uh, obviously we take blood samples and we do analyses that these days can uh, bring up results that no one ever expected and so we are pretty much on track to be able uh, in a couple of years to explain uh, the large majority of diseases in patients. Um, we can offer uh, treatments and Luxterna is most probably uh, the first of its kind but definitely not the last. Uh, if we look at the promising gene therapy trials in choroideremia, in RP, in achromatopsia potentially. There are lots of conditions that can be treated, but we shouldn't forget the more genetic type of treatment uh, treatments that will become available. Uh, I'm thinking about rod-derived corn viability factor. I'm uh, thinking about optogenetics, indeed, changing cells that aren't photoreceptors per se, changing them uh, so that they become a source of photoreception and therefore vision. Uh, the future is certainly promising and uh, this is a fantastic time to actually realize as a medical professional in the ophthalmology field that we really need to invest in getting the patients uh, through to the centers of excellence uh, and uh, we need to help you in a private practice or a, a large hospital practice to help manage the patients. And these centers of excellence can't see necessarily everyone all the time. So we need a lot of help and we're there to, to help you um, uh, learn more about these conditions and, and help you guide the patients to us when there's treatments available. Um, also, I think we should really try and uh, pursue more genetic testing throughout the world. The world can be a fairer place 
if we have more molecular testing available in parts of the world that currently do not offer that. Uh, and I'm even including the USA sometimes because the um, payers there are not always uh, easily convinced about, um, uh, about paying for such a test. And making the point that this can really be life-changing is an important uh, argument in favor of getting a, a government to agree to uh, reimburse such testing. Um, and with that, um, Isabel and, and Rob, I, I thank you very much. And I wish uh, all the best to our listeners. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.